After the Time Out podcast, hosted by Todd Zazadil and John Palicki, two high school head coaches talking basketball on the court, off the court, and anything in between. On today's episode of the After the Timeout podcast, we sit down with Coach Jamion Christian, head coach of George Washington University's men's basketball team. Prior to George Washington, Coach Christian was head coach at both Siena and Mount St. Mary. We talked to Coach Christian about keys to developing your program, continuing to increase the number of minority coaches in college basketball, his offensive and defensive concepts, and being a head coach at a young age. Enjoy the show. Coach, thank you for coming on. Uh, we're excited excited to have you. Um, we've been starting this with everybody just because of the time that it is, and I, we, we really think it's valuable for people to, to kind of see what other people have, are doing and maybe share some struggles, right, and, and share some positive things. But it's almost 365 days, a whole year since, right, COVID started, kind of everything got shut down, and then we got back going. Um, can you just take us through the last year in your program uh, some of the things you did during that time, um, and, and maybe some things that you came up with that you're con- continuing to do um, that you maybe didn't realize during the pandemic that you can use going into the future. Yeah, you know, first of all, thanks for having me on. I'm really, really fired up to to talk and share. Um, the year this year has been been super challenging, and I think what every college basketball coach and every college basketball program has done is we've like we've uh, underspoken how challenging it has been for, for all of us. And I think over the next few weeks, you're going to really start to get a good understanding of just what all our athletes are going through um, and what our coaches are going through to try to just get these guys to get on the, to be on the floor and be able to compete. You know, essentially these guys are going from being quarantined every day, you know, for, for 20 hours a day. And then we're asking them to step onto the floor and to compete at the highest level and I just think in so many ways, many of us just weren't equipped to be to to handle the emotional needs of our of our players. And I think that was like one of the most challenging parts of it. Uh, I'm a guy who's like always connected, always loving our guys, hugging our guys around them. I think one of the most challenging parts for me was that this year didn't really allow us the opportunity to be able to do all those things and to be able to show that so, sort of support. You know, there's nothing like a face to face conversation, a hug and embrace when you need it the most, a shake of the hand, a high five. You know, that physical connection is important and you just don't get that over Zoom, you know, so we try to do the best job we could. And we actually, you know, we have a leadership workbook that we work through that we do every year that we got, we got pretty far through it this year. Um, You know, so we tried to just enhance their minds the best way we could. Um, But again, it was a daunting task. I think we're going to continue to do some Zoom interviews and stuff like that to stay connected because I think that's going to be something moving forward that will make it easier, especially when they're away on breaks or, or away at some point. Um, but I definitely felt like it was one that I would say for myself was the most challenging year and, you know, coaches are going to be judged off their win loss record. And maybe that's part of the business, but I think one of the hardest things for me every day, I thought was getting our guys to the gym and being able to be clear minded because you're so worried about, you know, when you look at Maslow's hierarchy needs, you know, number one thing is, is safety. And when you're having to wear a mask every day, when you're having to get tested every day, you know, when you're being mindful to wash your hands over and over again, you're moving that safety component to the front front of their brain over and over again. And then you're asking them to go out here and bang and be physical. And 
you know, and those components don't really work well together um, and to take challenges and to take risk. So I think it's been a challenging year just for that. And I think we'll kind of find out the emotional toll it's taken on our players and mental toll it's taken on our players over the next few years. Um, but I think over the next few months, you're going to start hearing stories about just how it was, how hard it was for, for athletes during this time period. And um, I'm happy we made it to the end of the year. And I'm happy that you know, I was able to stand with these guys on the last game of the year. But I'd be lying if I said it was easy. It's one of the most, one of the hardest things I've ever done. That is a really interesting uh, dichotomy there. You, at one, we're telling them, wash your hands, socially distant. But on another one, we're saying, let's do the rebounding drill and be <laughs> as physical as we can. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Todd and I like to do our homework on everybody that we bring on to the show. And, and I did some research and I found that you won the Ben Job Award. And, and I'll be honest, I did not know a lot about the Ben Job Award. Um, you know, and other winners included James Jones, who we've had on the show, Damian Stoudemire, Dante Jackson, Kevin Ali, Dana Ford, Bobby Collins, Willis Wilson, Sean Woods, Ed Cooley, uh, Quanzo Martin, you know, and, and the award's given annually to the most outstanding minority men's basketball coach. So first of all, what did that mean for you to win the award? And then second, how can we continue to grow the number of minority coaches in the NCAA? Well, I'm in a ton. Um, you know, I mean, you know, when I won it, I think I was like 32 years old. So I was, I was, I was pretty young when I was able to win that. And it just meant a ton because and my parents were, were, my parents came up through the HBCU system. My mom went to Norfolk State. My dad went to Virginia State. Um, obviously, Ben Job is a, is a huge uh, figure in, in that community. Um, and just as being a black head coach, you know, growing up, like being able to learn about these different guys and to hear the different things about what our, what the black head coach before us had to go through. Um, you know, so it was, it was a big deal for me to win that because it, I really felt like it was a huge separator. You know, I hadn't won an award like that in my, in my lifetime that was connecting you to a legendary figure, you know, like sometimes you might win coach of the year award, you know, and that's kind of given out every year, but to win something that's connected to someone else's legacy says so much more about your responsibility to what you should do in the future and the responsibility that you have. Um, so it meant a ton um, and just to kind of be involved with that and to be connected with that and I'll always be connected with that and, and I'm always gonna appreciate that. Um, I think growing minority coaches and coaches of color in our game, uh, I mean, I think, I, th I think what we have to do is we have to really just be, be understanding of like where we are right now and, under, and, and just know like right now, I think we only have like 18 to 19% or something of, of head coaches in college basketball are black and you know, a large percentage of players are black. Um, and it's about just giving fair opportunity to everyone. You know, we're gonna go this hiring process this March, April, May, and you're gonna see guys get opportunities um, because their skin color, because they're connected to people that other guys just won't have the opportunity to do. And, you know, I think that's just super unfair. You know, I've been fortunate, right? Like I went to VCU went to the Mount, went to Siena, and now I'm here at GW. I've, you know, I've kind of been able to, to create my own pathway. Um, but it's not as though, like, when we left VCU, like, the Mount wasn't the top team in their league. You know, I went to Siena, the Siena wasn't the top team in their league. When I came to GW, we weren't the top team in our league. You know, I was inheriting jobs where we had to, we had to recreate culture and remodel some and rebuild some. Um, and I think when you look across the, the sporting spectrum, that's what you're seeing when black head coaches get an opportunity it's at the, it's at, it's when the program's at a, at a point where it's hard, you got to rebuild it all. And that's obviously a, ch a chance you're taking, you know, not many guys are taking over jobs that have won a championship the year before. And those are the opportunities that you really need, because that means those, those jobs typically have the infrastructure in place to continue to be good, the infrastructure in place with the players in the roster to continue to, to build something special. 
Um, but this is the pathway that we've been given so far. Um, and I'm proud of the pathway that I'm on. I own my path. I know if I do a great job on it, I'll be able to open up other pathways for others. That is something that's that's huge in, in the black coaching community is just understand our responsibility to, to do a great job where we are, to appreciate where we are, but to try to keep opening doors for others. Um, I think secondly, thing we can do is, <clears throat> I think I think education is really important. You know, when I looked, when I was at Mount St. Mary's, I did this. I went through division two, II, division three, you know, because I coached division three for two years. I thought it was one of the best experiences I've ever had. Uh, it taught me how to do a lot of things because, because it's only me and my head coach. You know, we didn't have a huge staff and I learned a lot. And so I said, I wanted to find people who have been on the same pathway as me. You know, I wanted to find small college guys who are working their way up. And I went through and I actually did it on the East Coast. And I looked at how many assistant coaches were black working Division Two and Division Three, And I was startled at how low a number it was. You know, it was hard to find, it was hard to find guys that, that, were, that, were, that were black or people of color um, coaching in those positions and at those, at those places. And so then I look at next layer, I said, well, why is that? And you look at how much those jobs make, right? Like I made $12,000 my first two years coaching college basketball. I was able to do that because I was a full scholarship athlete. Um, my parents were both teachers. So if I needed anything, I could always call home. But, you know, for the most part, and I had, and I had campus housing my first job. So that allowed me the ability to live and to be able to get that experience that I needed. And I don't know if, you know, because of the economy all the time, like, I don't know if people are able to make that kind of sacrifice. My brother's first job was at Tusculum. He coaches for the Wizards now, Jarrell Christian coaches for the Wizards. You know, his first job was a volunteer opportunity. You know, he one time took a job, took a pay cut from, you know, took a $30,000 pay cut to, to take a job opportunity, right? And we were fortunate enough to be able to do that because we could support one another and our family could support us if we needed it. But not everybody has the ability to be able to do that. And I think, you know, when you start working this job because you need a paycheck, it will prevent you from taking the opportunities that you need that may help your growth the most. But you also have to eat and sleep. So I think that's one of the harder parts about it is, you know, finding ways to, to help people of color um, or not even people of color and people of non-wealth to be able to take these opportunities so they can learn the stuff that they need to learn so they can be more successful. And right now we're only giving you know, I would say people of color, the opportunity they're getting is because they coach an AAU team, they play for an AAU team, or they played somewhere. And it needs to be a place where you can really work your way up from the bottom. Um, and I don't think we're getting quite enough of those opportunities. You know, like a lot of times we say guys are grinders because they started low and they worked their way up. But we haven't been able to, to create that for ourselves. Uh, and I think mostly because it's financial. So you talked about it here a little bit, taking over three college programs, right? So let's talk about when you take those over that first year, how do you start developing that culture and, and the things you're looking to build down the road? Um, and, and, you know, in your different stops, did you do similar things, um, you know, at George Washington, or did you change it from, you know, Mount St. Mary's, you know, you know what I mean? What, what were kind of the, the evolution and the, the progress of, of building that culture as, as you went along? Yeah, you know, I've kind of kept the same blueprint um, each stop, you know. Um, you know, one of the first things that we try to do, number one, we try to do a lot of research on the front end. So, you know, when we're involved in the job, I'm, I'm having someone or myself, we're doing a ton of research on the history of GW basketball, the history of Siena basketball, and Mount St. Mary's basketball. It's part of the history because I played there, so it's a little bit easier there. But, I, you know, I think it's important to get as much information before you get there. Because once you get there, that first 18 months really is a whirlwind. 
Like there's a lot of stuff going on. There's, you know, there's players coming in, there's players coming out. I mean, it's a lot of stuff going on that you're trying to figure out. I was just trying to do a lot of research on the front end. Um, and I thought that really helped. And then when I get there, you know, one of, the, one, of the, one of the things I think is really important is I try to listen. I think everyone expects you to come in and really start speaking. And you do have to speak, right? You have to speak to your donors. You have your press conference. You have to speak to key people around your program. But, you know, what we do is we come in and within the first 48 hours, I, I basically interview everybody within our program. Um, and I ask them about each other. You know, so like I'll have a one-on-one -on -one interview with, with you, John. And I'll say, John, like, you know, tell me about Todd. And, and we do that for every person because I want to get a good idea of like how our connection is on our team, who's connected with who, how everybody feels about one another. Um, you know, they'll be really honest. You know, it's crazy. That first one, these guys get pretty bold, you know, um, and they'll tell you what, you, you know, they'll tell you. And then I have me with our academic person. I mean, and I do that at the beginning and then I do that about six months into it uh, because I want to see what's changed in the six months. And then we always do our assessment at the end of the year that gives us some of that information as well. Um, but I, I think you want to try to figure out that first year team dynamics. You know, you want to find one thing in the first week that you can create that's a little bit different. You know, one of the things we did um, at Siena is like we changed the shower heads in the first week. It's like really seeing something really small. The guys were talking about how the showers weren't great or something, that water pressure wasn't great. We're like, all right. We just go in there, we change the shower heads. Like those are like some small things that you just want the guys to know that you're listening to them. And, you know, those are like small things that guys will feel like, oh, he heard me. And every time they go in there, they're going to think that you took care of them, that you listened to them. Right. So just, you know, I think I know it's easy. I mean, like Urban Meyer probably comes in, he like redoes the locker room and they probably, you know, I didn't have this job where I could throw a million dollars at a project, you know. So we had to find little things that we felt like could impact their lives daily. And you can't do that unless you listen. You know, it could be food. It could be how the guys are eating and what they want and what they don't want. And, you know, these little things. And, you know, I just want them to feel like I'm connected to them. I'm listening to them because it is different. You know, how we try to connect with the guys. Uh, I hate this word, but I'll use it because I think people can understand. It's, it, I want it to be way more transformational. Um, I want to help them grow into the person that they, they want to become. And maybe sometimes they forget about that person when they get in competition. I don't want it to be a transactional relationship. And I think men's basketball is dominated by transactional relationships. You play well, you get more. You play, you play poorly, you get less. And I don't want to operate that way. Uh, I want to treat our guys the same way in this office, outside the building, as we, as uh, whether or not you're scoring 20 or, or giving up 20. But on the floor, it is about competing and getting after it. And there is a hierarchy to things that we need. And I think that's a hard balance to help people understand because typically they want to say, I love my coach or I hate my coach. Right. And you can love the coach. You can love the man and hate the coach. You can love, you know, so I think understanding that there's duality in that, I think is important. Um, and I think that's hard for people in general to understand. I think it's hard for kids to really understand because, you know, all their lives, they're like, oh, I love my coach or, you know, because how, how much he plays you. And I'm not going to treat you a different way because how much I play you, you know, um, we're going to treat you the same. And then I'm going to play you whatever helps the team win. <laughs> and, and I think that's hard for people to understand. So that starts pretty early when we get there. And then we do like an assessment, like a skill assessment, where we want to see the natural skill of what the guys can do and can't do. 
Um, there's been so many times where I've gotten to a place where the system just didn't fit some of the guys, but then some of the guys fit our system better. And so it's kind of worked out and we've gotten lucky with some of that, you know, like we brought Armel Potter in here. I mean, Armel Potter was here when I got here at George Washington, he had an amazing year, maybe one of his best years in college basketball under us and our system where we pick a role for him and he'd get downhill and <clears throat> all those things. Right. And so, you know, you're always going to find one or two guys that can fit your system. Um, and then you're going to find some guys that don't that fit the other system before. And I think that's understandable, but really trying to be clear, you know, pretty early on about what our system looks like and how we want to play. And so those guys that, that maybe don't fit that can try to make an adjustment or try to work through it. Um, so those are, we're, we're pretty, I mean, we're pretty cookie cutter with how we're going to operate that first 18 months. Um, we recognize that there's going to be, there's going to be changes, you know, um, not everybody touching that circle the first day usually makes it to the last day. You know, usually your first couple of classes you bring in, you're probably not going to have all those guys make it to the end and graduate. Um, we want that, but it's just a hard situation to do it when you're trying to rebuild something. Um, so just trying to give the guys like, I love you. I care about you. I'll do anything for you. Um, I, I think it's first and foremost, but then also having a strong understanding that this is, this is a competition. And we are competing to be one of the best teams in our league every single year. Um, I think helping them learn that and understand that is difficult, um, but it's something that I think is important to do in that first 18 months. You don't want you don't want to ask us about each other. You, you want to interview Todd about me and me about Todd, you'd get some real interesting answers. So that's what I want, though. The more interesting answers, the more interesting stories, the better. Because when you come in there that first, you come in there, like you don't know these guys at all. Um, and you need those stories to get to know the guys' personalities. Um, and that's what's so challenging about the first 18 months is that in the guys that you inherit or the guys that you recruit quickly, you may not know all their motivation points. And if you miss their motivation points, you're going to miss the mark on how, helping them become the best they can be. So let's kind of, let's kind of tweak it. You know, you had talked about being a, a division three assistant, you know, Todd and I were both on uh, the college assistants. And so you, you, you tend to learn a lot from, from the head coaches that you're with. So take us through, you know, that your stops as an assistant, you know, what are things you took from each of those stops that some of them you may still do today? Some of them you may not do today. I mean, we can talk access knows you could talk cultural program management, you know, anything that you, that really sticks out to you that, that you still kind of use today? Yeah, well, the first job I had was at Emory and Henry. I worked for a guy named Bob Johnson. Um, you talk about just getting lucky and landing in the right place at the right time with the right person. Coach Johnson was really at the end of his career when I got with him. He was there, at that time, he was there, I think, 26 years. And I, I always feel like I got the best out of him because he had – done so many different styles basketball wise he'd had so many different teams they'd been in the NCAA tournament they've had tough losses they'd had success they failed like I felt like he was just an amazing like almost encyclopedia for basketball for me that I could just learn from like I always think it's like I always call him like he's like my Mr. Miyagi you know like you know and I'm just like his student there and I'm just going wax on wax off you know and and you know he would start I mean if I could ever be as good a coach as he was, you know, like, I mean, he's just one of the best coaches I've ever been around. You know, I'll tell you how our journey started. You know, we move in, I'm moving into, to this apartment. He secures his apartment. that's right across from campus. I don't have to pay anything, you know, I'm basically living and, you know, he secures his for us. It's great. And he says, call me when you get to your apartment. So I call him and, you know, he's, a, he's in his, I think he's in his mid sixties at this point. 
And he, so I call him and when I go upstairs, I'm kind of moving some stuff in. And then I hear some grunting coming from the staircase, you know, and I'm like, what is going, you know, I'm in this new place. I don't know where I am. And I kind of walk back to the staircase and coach Johnson has the mattress on his back. He's bringing it up the stairs, you know? And I just remember that feeling when, when I saw that, I just always knew this guy would have my best interest at heart, you know, a true leader who's going to literally put your mattress on his back, you know, that's, and he wanted us to, he wanted me to feel comfortable. And I just always remember that gesture. And I try to do something for our staff and we hire new staff every single time. Like, so they feel like I'm going to take care of them. Um, and so I remember him doing that. And, and then from there, I mean, I mean, that's the kind of leader he was. I mean, he was a, he was an army ranger in the Vietnam war. Um, so his background was a little bit different, but I just learned so much from him. Um, you know, one of the things I learned is like, you know, when you get, you know, being able to have versatility in your style of play and not being afraid to take chances, like most people are afraid to take chances and change things up. Um, I learned from him, you can learn anything. You know, like, you know, he ran Princeton before he ran motion. He ran, like, he's done everything. But you can learn how to do that. And it's all about matching your players with your style of play. Um, and so we would do that. You know, we, when we were there, we did this, we called it Emerson Henry running attack, where we, we were basically, we were subbing every 35 seconds and shooting the ball every 11 seconds and pressing and trapping. And, and we just basically created it with our team, you know? And, and so, I mean, I think those are the things that like I learned watching him was that you can be successful a lot of different ways. And a lot of times people just say, I'm going to be successful one way, but I think having flexibility is a strength. And I think we've, we've carried that everywhere we've gone. Like we've gone ball screen motion. We've gone throwing the ball inside. We've gone two guard. Like we mix it in pretty good. And I learned that from him. And I also learned, I mean, I learned a lot from Coach Johnson. And I also learned like just how to, how to lead with love and accountability and to do so fearlessly. You know, a, a guy like him who you would think is no nonsense. I saw him sh show such great compassion to kids when they made a mistake, um, when they didn't do what they were supposed to do. And you would think you'd come in there and he would rip you and he would build you up. And then in moments where you think it wasn't a big deal, he would, he would, he would jump you for it because he knew you could be better and you knew you, you, you deserved to be better, right? So Coach Johnson always gets a large one because he just, I mean, he just, I mean, I could talk about him for hours, um, just the impact he had on me. Um, then I had a chance to go work for Pat Flannery at Bucknell. I was a director of basketball operations. And most people kind of look at these operations jobs. I think it's kind of a mistake, honestly. I think in our basketball community, we look at these operations jobs as like stepping stone jobs. Like I'm going to be here two years. I'm going to make a move. I'm going to be here a year. I'm going to make a move. And I, I didn't look at it like, that way. I looked at it like I had an opportunity to learn something different and focus really in on, on one thing. You know, when you become a head coach, the, a lot of the stuff you do as an assistant, you don't get a chance to do. It becomes way more operational than it is uh, even coaching, right? And so I had a chance to work for Coach Flannery. I was his director of basketball operations. Coach Flannery took me to every meeting he had, um, right on his right arm, taking notes, listing how he handled things, teaching me how to handle things, teaching me how to communicate with people in the building, how to communicate with donors outside the building. Um, I mean, he just like, I mean, I felt like I just got such an education with him because he taught me how to, how to operate. You know, when I became a head coach, I took more from my director of basketball operations mindset than I did from my assistant coaching mindset. Um, you know, he was big on us building out checklists and creating things for our staff to follow. So I was able to see that, you know, from his perspective, like, 
you know, if, if we're, if we're going to do something in a hotel, you know, if we're going to have a hotel stay, what's the eight things we should have on the checklist? You know, like most people don't think about that, but that's how he thought. So we build that checklist out. Um, and then I, you know, now I build that checklist out for recruiting for, you know, everything, there's a checklist, right? Just make sure things don't fall through the cracks. But I learned that from coach Flannery um, and he sees it like a business. He wants us to operate that way. And that's where we operated. I just learned a ton from Coach Flannery. From there, I went to work for Tony Shaver at William and Mary, um, and and Shaver is like amazing. I mean, we saw we saw what he was able to do at William and Mary, and we see how it's been able to continue. You're really looking at the best ten or fifteen years in William and Mary basketball history, and a large part of that is because what Tony Shaver was able to do, able to stabilize the program, raise his standard. You know, he's such a fierce competitor that you know he would he would make a, he would make guys compete on a day-to-day basis and he wouldn't let the competition level drop. One thing I learned from Shaver, he's amazing with his best player. Like his best player, he doesn't mess with his best player. He lets his best player go. And and I watched those guys grow so much because of it. Now he would coach them and but like he would he would he would let those guys take experiment. You know, he would let those guys kind of push us forward. And I think when you look at his teams, he, he was always so good with his best guys. And I thought that's why they were so successful. He was able to build that ego and that confidence in the group, you know, working through the best guy. Um, there, VCU with Shaka Smart. And, you know, Coach Smart is a, is a person who's an amazing influence on me every day um, in a lot of ways. You know, he's only a few years older than me. So some of the things that I'm experiencing now or last year or next year, he's already gone through. Um, I think so many times in life, we don't appreciate the true journey of things. And all of us coaches kind of go through similar journeys. It's not the same, but you go through similar journeys. You know, I watched Coach Smart use himself as a lightning rod for an entire program, as a lightning rod for every player. I watched him connect with guys in a way that I'd never seen a head coach connect with guys. Guys crying on his shoulder, guys laughing in his arms. Um, every single day, just his ability to love these guys relentlessly and, and to build them up and to hold them accountable, I thought was, was amazing to watch at this level, you know, where it becomes very transactional, the higher you go, he was able to keep it not transactional. He made it about his connection with the guys and he would talk to them. He would spend time with them. He would text them. I remember getting in the car and one day with Coach Smart, I don't know if he still does this, but which I thought was really neat. He said, let's go recruit tonight. So most head coaches, you're driving him. He's like, I'm driving. And he gives me a cell phone and he's like, hey, I want you to, yeah. And he would just tell me what to text the guys and stuff while he was driving. But I'd open his phone and he would have every guy listed there. I mean, he'd been texting these guys all day. Um, and so I just, I mean, I just learned a lot. I mean, I've been so fortunate, guys. Like I've worked for some amazing people that, man, they just poured into me and I tried to soak in everything that, um, that they gave. Um, you know, and Coach Smart, I mean, it, it just his awareness and his understanding of, of people, um, it's just really special. And again, I've learned so much from him. Again, I could talk about him for hours too. And just the, the things that he, that he teaches us and how much he puts it, how much love he puts in every person around him. Okay, so now let's flip it. Now you become a head coach at a young age, right? Different, different ball game, right? Um, you're named one of the top 40 coaches under 40 by ESPN. But what, you, what did you learn all right, starting at a at a young age up until now, right? Obviously, you think you know things, right? And then you you develop them along the way. And uh, what did you kind of maybe realize you didn't know, all right, after you took over? And then um, advice that you would give to someone that takes over a program at a young age. 
Yeah, you know, I always have a pretty healthy dose of humility. Um, and I try to always keep that. I mean, I'm, I'm from New Kent, Virginia. And, you know, we're, we're, you know, people don't become college basketball coaches from New Kent, Virginia. Um, and, and so I always keep a good level of humility with it. I mean, I was at Bucknell with Flannery and he had one of the most amazing runs ever there. And he had a bad year and they moved on from him. You know, I was with Shaver and, and you know, Shaver and he had a great journey there. And they moved on from him at, at a certain point. So I've always kind of had a good level of humility that I think is really important. Um, I think one thing that happens when you step into the head coaching chair is you have to have an, an amazing amount of confidence in front of your guys in certain moments. And there are certain moments where you got to be completely humble and there are certain moments where you got to keep them moving forward and being able to identify those moments. Um, you know, I think things that, I mean, there's a lot that I've learned um, from the from the beginning until now. Um, and it, number one is that not every situation is the same. So, you know, we inherited some situations at Mount St. Mary's, they're not the same here and they're not connected. Um, you know, I did learn, you know, creating your environment is the most important thing you can do. And your environment you're creating is good and bad and having a strong awareness about what you're building up and what you're suppressing. Um, you know, like, you know, I think it was at the Mount, we should never talk about league awards because we only want the team award. Um, I think that suppressed some, some, some folks, you know, and I think, you know, now we'll at least acknowledge it, you know, <laughs> we'll at least acknowledge the guy's a first team all league player, but at the Mount, we didn't acknowledge it at all. You know, we had one goal and that was to be a champion. And, you know, and so at least maybe now we'll, we'll, retweet the tweet or something, you know? Um, but, you know, I think there's just a ton that you learn. I mean, when you're young, you're going to fly around and make mistakes and it's acceptable. As you get older, it's not as acceptable to fly around and make mistakes. You know, you gotta, you gotta really learn from those, from those mistakes. Um, but I think there's, there, I think it's a big benefit to getting in when you're young though, because, um, you know, my, sometimes when I didn't maybe know what to do, my connectivity to the guys got us through it. You know, the optimism that I had, maybe because I was naive, pushed the needle forward in moments where it might have, if I was being more realistic, it might not have pushed the needle forward. Um, so I think there's a ton of stuff there. I think if, if you jump in as a first time head coach, I think knowing who you are, um, I, I do think I've always had a good sense of who I was as a person. And I, I didn't try to go outside of that. I tried to learn and get better. But I think knowing who you are, because you get exposed in leadership when you don't know who you are. And your players see through <clears throat> through the things that you really believe in and the things that you don't. And so I think a lot of times us coaches will try to do something that maybe we, we think we should do, but we don't really believe in it. And our players can feel that kind of vibe. So I think having a strong sense of who you are, I think I think is very important. Um, be really understanding that you don't have all the answers, that you're going to need to talk to people and to listen and and to just try to keep finding ways to, to reinvent yourself, especially at the beginning, because again, if you're getting a job where you don't have maybe the best players, maybe the best facilities and that's way to travel, you're gonna have to get creative and you're gonna have to accept that it's not gonna be perfect um, and, and, be, and be okay with that. <clears throat> you know, at the Mount, we had to play like six money games a year, you know? Yeah, you know, my record those money games guys ain't good. You know, and over 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 six years, that's you know, that's almost that's almost you know, I think one year we might have played eight or something, and we have almost 40 games. You know, so how can you keep the enthusiasm of your group when <clears throat> when you're playing these tough games at the beginning of the year so that you can travel the way you want to travel or recruit the way you want to recruit? You know, I had to figure that out. Um, 
And I think sometimes people don't look at those opportunities. They say, man, I don't know if we can win this way. And you can win a lot of ways. And number one, if you have great players and they believe in you and you inspire them, you can win. And, and, I, and so we've always tried to make that the focus of everything we've tried to do. I think that that's so, that's so key. I, I just love how often that you use the word love for your, your guys. I think that's so awesome. Um, so let's kind of get into the leadership stuff and, and you and I have kind of talked off air about the leadership stuff before. Um, and I know you put a, a great emphasis and you mentioned it to start the show of on developing leaders. So why, why do you spend so much time and, and place such a great emphasis on it? And, you know, how did you go about kind of developing your leadership enhancement materials? Yeah, you know, one of the things Coach Johnson would do when I was at Emory is we would meet every Friday with uh, every Friday up to a certain point in the year. You know, once you get to the season, start playing, it's kind of difficult. But you had about seven Fridays, I think, typically at that time, seven or eight Fridays before the start of the year. And he would give his guys different books in the summer to read, and they would come in and they would teach it to the group on the Fridays. Um, and I always felt like that was amazing because he was creating an environment where learning was appreciated, learning was, was, uh, was expected, um, and you're learning from your peers. Um, and so that's where I really got the first idea about doing that, doing this with the guys. Obviously, Mike Jarvis, too, did a bunch of stuff here when he was here with his mentoring group and stuff. So like having watching that when I was like when I was in high school I'd watch all a bunch of GW stuff and they would talk a lot about his mentoring group and stuff so there was like a foundation of curiosity kind of created from Jarvis then when I got with coach Johnson um I was able to kind of learn how to do it and how to apply it a little bit more um I think it's important <clears throat> because I think we all need to grow in our leadership um it doesn't mean I have to be the leader um, but I think if I can grow in my leadership, when these moments present themselves, I will speak up on what needs to be said. So many things happen through the course of the year that the guys just kind of let it go, go, you know, kind of go to the wayside and then it stacks up on itself, you know, and then a guy comes in, he's like, man, this guy's done four things to me. Well, I was like, did you tell him about the first one he did, you know, and he'll be like, oh, no, you know, <clears throat> I just didn't want to say anything because of X, Y, and Z, but those things you're bringing to the floor. They're bringing those emotions, those thoughts, those feelings to the floor. And obviously that's going to prevent them from being clear-headed and clear-minded to go out there and playing their very best. And I think that's really important for those guys to be able to do. Um, so I think growing them as a leader, again, it doesn't mean the guy has to be the captain of the team. It doesn't mean you have to be a leader. It doesn't mean you have to be the only leader. But I think when you understand leadership, you understand that you need other leaders around you to be at your best, right? And so there's an understanding of my strengths and my weaknesses, because our understanding of the kind of people I need around me. And I think those are really important for a team dynamic, right? Because if we're, if we're pressing in the back of the zone has to communicate, well, now he's the leader, right? If I'm the point guard, I have to organize this. Now I'm the leader. If I'm taking all the ball out of bounds, number three, now I'm the leader. So this notion of a leader changes in basketball. It's not like football where like you're the quarterback and one guy's always telling everybody where to go. You know, like, like you have different leaders that have to step up in different areas. Um, so I think growing that leadership and growing that love, the ability to be honest within the locker room when things come up, I think it's really important. Now, it takes time to get there. And I'll tell you this, I mean, it takes us about a year and a half, maybe two years before the cultures that are at a place where the guys will say, just say the truth to each other. But once you get there, it's like this, it's like this wheel that just gets rolling. 
And then you start getting guys who are not afraid to tell the truth to one another. You know, they spend the, they spend the first two years just trying to be friends. And again, I think this duality, like I want to be friends with you off the floor, but when we get on the floor, it's about competing and being at our best. And, and so that's why I think growing leadership is important because there's a lot in growing leadership that benefits a team. You know, like I don't want a guy who is passing the buck off of leadership all the time. You know, there because there are going to be certain moments where you got to lead. I mean, there's a loose ball. I got to lead in that moment. If, if I want to follow in that moment, we, we're not going to get the ball. I got to lead in that moment. So I just think, I think basketball is great that way where there's so many different moments of leadership. You know, there might be a pass to the wing and the team switches defenses. Am I just going to throw the ball back to the point guard so now he can lead us? Or am I going to hold the ball and say, hey, they're in zone, we're in Patriot, whatever, make a pass and go make a play. You know, and, and so that's where we're always trying to grow that. Um, I also think it's really important in their personal relationships, um, you know, outside of basketball. You know, these guys are going to get married. They're going to have families. So we have our obligation to try to teach them how to work through difficult, how to work through tough. Um, and I think, I think you learn that in leadership, like when to speak up, how to speak up, why it's important to speak up, and then being able to articulate why you're feeling a certain way, why it's important, and being able to help you move forward from it. Um, I think that really helps you in your personal relationships. Um, and, and we talk a ton about those things. Um, so that's why I'm like really passionate about leadership. I think it's something that will impact all, all these guys in so many different walks of life, not just on the basketball floor. Um, you know, I think it will impact them for a long period of time. And, you know, really, really proud to stand with our guys. They've done a great job of it. Um, I also think we talk a lot about leadership. Guys, I think guys leave the locker room if they don't feel like they can live up to that standard. Um, I think you're setting a standard with it every day about how we're gonna op how we're gonna operate, how we're gonna act, and how we're gonna interact. And if someone doesn't want to live up to that standard, they sort of just remove themselves. And I think that makes it easier for your group to move forward. You know, you're never hurt if the group moves forward. You're only hurt if the group stops. And, you know, I think it's important that you're establishing a culture to establish a standard of, of those things. All right, so let's jump on the court now. A um, little bit of X, X's and O's here. You boil it down offensively. Obviously, you talked about uh, learning how you have to change a little bit. But I think every coach has their, their still their base concepts that they, you know, that they really believe in. So what are your basic and base offensive concepts that you believe you know, create shot opportunities, create scoring, and how do you measure those concepts to see if they're successful? Yeah, you know, we, we pick and roll a ton here. Um, we've been one of the best pick and roll teams, hitting the roll guy, you know, several years in a row. Um, and then we score a ton off the pick and roll. Um, I, I just love the pick and roll. I, I, I've been doing it since since uh, NBA Jam, really. Um, so, I mean, uh, I, I just always felt like there was a way to get two guys in the ball and then you're able to make a great play. Um, so, you know, we pick and roll a ton, you know, my, my prior life, I used to press and trap every possession and I love doing that. I mean, I love picking guys up and being aggressive and you know, we haven't really been able to do it the last three years just because of personnel, really, you know, you definitely have to have a different mindset. You have to have a different kind of personality to do that. And we have not been able to have that kind of ability as of yet. It doesn't mean we won't go back there someday. Um, but I, I do think that's important. Um, you know, we've always defended the three pretty well. Um, we want to take a lot of threes. I'd love to someday get up to taking 50% of our shots from three. We haven't gotten there yet. Um, but that means you got to defend a three on the other end. Um, and so we've always done a pretty good job of that. 
Um, but, you know, we're kind of known for letting these guys play free and loose. I mean, this past year we had two guys average over 20 points a game in conference play. Guys are making outside shots and making plays. We have great versatility in our offense. You know, if you're a shooter playing for us, you're going to use flare screens, down screens. You're going to post up some. You're going to come through the gate some. You're going to catch some catch and shoots. You're going to get some in transition. You know, like we really pride ourselves on being able to create shot opportunities for, for guys that can score the ball and, and uh, giving them a ton of confidence to be able to go and do that. That just made my morning. NBA Jam reference. Love it. That's the first one of this podcast. Man, now you, you know, just need, people, now people you just need know, guys man. to catch fire like that, right? Yeah. Like, you know, people don't know it like, you know, like they should. I mean, I, I actually went back and tried to find another one, like an updated one, because I think it's, I mean, really, I mean, it's a foundation of basketball. It's two on two, right? And and uh, obviously the game has some great optics too. But, um, you know, I just remember playing that and, you know, trying to learn how to play the game of basketball, you know, through video games. What was your team? Uh, you know what? Uh, you know, I, I always like the always like the underdogs. Okay. You know, so I would have like Brad Lowhouse with like the Bucks or something. <laughs> you know, like it'd be like weird because you just make threes, right? So I just space you out, and, and uh, um, so I, so I always had I, I would use them a ton. Um, you know, I, I never use like the Knicks or Lakers. Like I never use any of the, like premier teams. I always liked. I'll use the Supersonic some. They were kind of premier at the time with Sean Kim. Little deadlift shrimp back. Yeah, little deadlift shrimp could really stretch you. Like I would, I would kind of pick him more than, than GP usually. Actually, I try to go with two two bigger guys. Um, so you know, just just stuff, stuff like that. I mean, I, I've always kind of operated that way. Kevin Johnson and and uh, uh, who was with Kevin Johnson? Uh, uh, I can't remember. Had the Tom Chambers, Kevin yeah, Johnson, yeah, Tom, Tom Chambers for sure. You know, I like that, you know, so that, that's kind of how I always operated. I, I've always operated from a point of trying to build something or trying to do something instead of joining, uh, you know, the, the, the typical teams. So let's kind of transition that into defense now. So, you know, it, again, when it boils down to it, you know, what are two or three base defensive goals you guys have? You kind of talked about defending the three. And then if you had to state like your team's current defensive philosophy in one sentence, what would you say? Yeah, that's the first transition from NBA Jam to defense, maybe in the history of. of, of Absolutely. Podcast. Look at that. Um, I would say defensively for us, you know, it's about trying to keep the ball on one side of the floor, um, not allowing you to get the ball across the midline, keeping on one side of the floor. Um, you know, this year we switched a ton just because we didn't want to be in rotation. Um, we have versatility. We may change that next year. Um, and defending the three, I think, are really big. And then I would say getting back in transition. You know, I'm not a big offensive rebound guy. I'm really big on our guys sprinting back and just building the wall up to not give you anything in transition. I think when our team's been great defensively, we've been able to do that. Um, in one sentence, I would say take away what you do best. Um, I think when we've been able to do that, I think that's – you know, if you have a, if you, if you make threes, we take away, you take away your threes. If you have a great post player, we trap your post guys. I think that's being able to be able to do that. I think is huge. Um, we haven't exactly been great defensively here yet, um, but I feel like it's coming. I feel like it's coming. All right. So um, we have an after the timeout segment, obviously we talk about like timeout structures and things like that uh, in Illinois this year we added a 90 second mass timeout, right? Very similar to the TV timeouts at the, at mm -hmm. the college level. Um, you know, and we have our sixties and thirties, um, but those are big differences in time, right? Where you're, yeah. you're really quick or you have a longer time. Um, and, you know, this is something I know I personally want to work on going into next year, uh, you know, with, with my team, but what is your structure for, for the different, 
segments of the timeouts, right? Yeah. Um, the 30, the 60, and then the, the obviously the TV timeout. Yeah. So for the, I think we just have the 30 and then I guess we do have, we have 160, I guess it is. We have like 160 and then we have the TV. I kind of keep the 60 to 90 kind of the same. Um, and so one of the things we talk about in the longer timeouts, we talk about paint touches, how many times we got the ball in the paint. We talk about how many turnovers we had because those are shot opportunities we didn't get. We talk about 50-50s and we grade these on there. So like when they come over, they're on the board and it says 50-50s, it says it right there. So we always know like, hey, we got to go plus one. You know, if you go plus one 50-50 every media time, well, that's plus eight possessions. You know, Butler, when they, when they, the second time they went to the national championship game or final four, they were averaging five more possessions a game off 50 50s. Okay. So that's like an incredible, you know, so looking at 50 50s. Um, and so we kind of grade those things. We grade our box outs. So every time a shot goes up, how many guys are holding their box outs? Um, you want threes and fours. You don't get five. You get a guy contesting a shot. You might not get five. But when teams go on runs, you're at one or two. So if you're getting guys at three and four, three and four, three and four, you're going to be a pretty good place. And then because of threes, we grade contesting shots, right? Because we know if we can test shots with our left hand on a right-hand shooter, uh, typically it's 18% difference in your three-point shooting um, as a team. So, you know, we grade those things in the 60 and 90. Those are the things, those are, those might be the only things we talk about in the 60 to 90, right? Maybe make a play adjustment, maybe something else. And then in a 30 second time, it really depends on the situation. You know, if it's underneath out of bounds defensively, making sure your team is set and anticipating what could be happening there. Um, a lot of times the 30s can be emotional timeouts. So we really try to settle our emotion. Um, you know, like they, you go on a run, they call timeout. There's emotion for you, there's emotion for them. They go on a run, we call timeout. There's emotion for us, there's emotion for them. So it's really not about like, hey, let's, you know, let's run this intricate play. It's really about let's settle our emotion and then let's do this. Um, you know, I would say like, a lead, loud, exact, attack, demand. Um, and those 30-second timeouts are pretty good lead timeouts where you can you can really go at it really quickly for the guys. So we always love to do some kind of top five at the end. So uh, for you, our top five is what are the top five most uh, important traits to help to develop a great program culture? Um. I would say number one, I guess I'm supposed to start at five, but I would start with one. Uh, getting the right people in your program. I think that's one. I think that's really important. Number two, setting a standard that will create excellence. Number three, I think having those one and two, like having people that will help you um, hold the standard. Um, cause it's easy to set these things at the beginning and then you might be the only one that's holding everybody accountable and that's exhausting. Number four, operate with a creative mind to be able to, to build the things that you may not have, but you know, you need. And number five, I would say operate with like great, great optimism, um, and great belief. Um, a plan usually doesn't come to fruition at the very beginning. I mean, even in the movies, guys, when you put a plan together, it always almost messes up in the middle right? That's life. So being able to stick to a plan and to be able to see a process through, I think you're going to need that optimism, um, you know, at, at the number five spot. I think those five things are pretty good ones that you'll need 
to kind of see a plan through and, and, and improve yourself. Well, coach, we cannot thank you enough. This was one of my favorite episodes. I've, I've been a fan of yours for a long time, followed you uh, at multiple stops and uh, you, you can never have too many references for NBA jams in a podcast. So we, we gravely appreciate you being on and, and we hope to have you on even again down the road. Yeah, I'd love it, man. I appreciate the time and, and uh, enjoy March Madness, man. We missed it last year. It's going to be a great one this year, man. There are a lot of teams that can win it this year, so it'll be fun to watch. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the After the Timeout podcast. For more information and upcoming episodes, follow us on Twitter at After the Timeout or subscribe to our podcast for upcoming episodes. For show inquiries, you can email us at afterthetimeout at gmail.com. You can find all of our episodes on Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast by searching After the Timeout. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time for more basketball content on the court, off the court, and everything in between.